Well, Psalm 16 here is really quite hard to interpret because the, the Hebrew text is pretty hard to make sense of. You just see that by reading different English versions. They're quite different in quite a few places. And as we're aware, uh, starting uh, really from verse 8 down to the end, to 11, I've set the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand. I should not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. My flesh shall rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your holy one to see corruption. You have shown me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures for evermore. Uh, those four verses are quoted in Acts 2 by Peter about Jesus, and they're quoted from the Septuagint. And when you read verses 1 to 7 in the Septuagint, uh, of this psalm, you'll find they're quite different from the, uh, the Masoretic text, which... Uh, which most of the English versions tend to go for. So it's uh, it's quite difficult to uh, be quite sure of interpretation here because of that the, that problem with the uh, with the language. But we we can of course find some basic uh, points that that we can understand. I think from from any of the versions. Well, this is a lovely example of of what it is to be spiritually minded because there in verse one, preserve me, O God. For in you do I put my trust, O my soul, you have said unto the Lord, you are my Lord. This is David talking to himself and encouraging himself in God, as we're told in in 2 Samuel that he did, and reflecting on what he said to God. Now, you know, just on a practical level, how many times do you actually reflect on your prayers? You know, I fear that we all tend to rattle off prayer to God, and often when we're tired, uh, we, we pray or half our mind is on something else. And here he can remember what he said to God and he's just reflecting on what he's just said to God or what he's prayed to God earlier. Uh, and that's, you know, that is what spiritually mindedness, spiritual mindedness is really all about, isn't it? Uh, just having a mind that is reflecting on our relationship with God. And that, that is the essence, of course, of of Christianity. Now, to get a handle on all these psalms, if at all possible, it's good to try to figure out the, the context in which David says this. And it's at a time when he's in danger, preserve me, O God, and I trust in you for this. And it's at a time when he's thinking about the faithful in Israel, verse 3, the saints that are in the land, uh, verse for he laments that there are those who hasten after another god and he vows that he's not going to do that the fact they go to another god implies that they've somehow uh, lost their their faith and he seems to have lost his inheritance because he says in verses 5 and 6 that god will sort of look after my inheritance and you will maintain my lot you will maintain it so he's on the run, and he's lost his inheritance, but he trusts in God for that. And one is inclined to to think this, this could either be when he's on the run from Saul, or when he's on the run from Absalom. I suggest it's probably when he's on the run from Absalom, because that was a time when he had lost his inheritance as a young guy, running away from Saul, he didn't really have much of an inheritance to worry about, whereas, as you know, when he fled from Absalom, he left everything behind, his uh, wives, etc. Um, and then verse 8, sorry, verse 7, 
God has given me counsel, and I thank him for that, he's saying, and my heart, the AV says, will, uh, instructs me at night. But the Hebrew word there translated instruct is really chastise or reproves me. And that is picked up in most of the other translations. So I think that that is very similar language to how he reflects in many of the Psalms about his failure with Bathsheba, that through Nathan the Lord came and gave him his word, his counsel. David responded, fortunately. And he mentions in a number of the Bathsheba Psalms how his heart did chastise him. And I would therefore suggest this is after Bathsheba, and therefore it would fit really the time of, of Absalom. So in verse 4, when he's lamenting how others are turning to other gods, I wonder if some of the men that were with him, who thought, well, it's all over now with David, but we're going to be loyal to him, and we, we know that Absalom's got no time for us, the new regime is not for us, that they were starting to turn to other idols. And he says, no, I will not do that. And so he says in verse 2, O my soul, you have said unto Yahweh, you are my Lord. I will not turn to any other god. That's what he's saying. I'm going to stick with, with you. And so he, he says, verse 5, the Lord, Yahweh, is the portion of my inheritance. God is my inheritance. Now, that is very much the language of the Levites, of whom we're told that they had no inheritance. Why? Because the Lord was their inheritance. Well, we know that David felt a bit of a Levite because he acts really as a priest, even as a high priest, wearing an ephod, although he was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi, and uh, acting really as a priest, blessing the people, giving them uh, bread and wine, etc., uh, when the ark comes to, to Zion. And so I think that although he wasn't a Levite, he felt the spirit of that. And, of course, we are, 1 Peter 2, 5, a royal priesthood. That this should be our attitude as well, that whether we have never had, as it were, a great inheritance uh, in, in the worldly sense in this world, or whether we've had it and lost it, or whether we've still got it. The point is that we are to be as the Levites, whereby our relationship with God is so important and so wonderful for us in doing his work, is so wonderful that he and that work and that relationship with him, that is our inheritance. That is our, our lot, as he calls it here. Now, if my reconstruction of the context of the psalm is correct, verse 6 is pretty amazing. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a goodly inheritance. So, although he's in a terrible situation, really, he's lost all that he's got. He says that he has got a wonderful inheritance. Now, that really is how we should feel, that we should never be like so many people in the world who regret that they have not got a larger house or that they don't own a property or that their material situation is as it is. Because the point is that we have got a huge inheritance and that's because we are God's people and we are that new priesthood who have his work to do in serving him. And really that is a principle that should affect us in, in so many parts of our lives. 
that all the, the go about wealth creation and the worry that goes with it about smart investment, uh, developing our career, uh, this, that and the other. Look, the Lord is our inheritance. We are, as it were, the Levites who did not have any land, uh, who did not have an inheritance among the tribes because they were called to God's work. Now, we may think, yeah, well, that's just not for me. But it is for you and me because we are that priesthood. And David, I think, got there to this spirit, having lost what he'd had, so he felt at the time, he reflects that the Lord is uh, my inheritance, and wow, I've got a lovely inheritance. God is my inheritance, verse 5 and verse 6, he says, I've got such a good inheritance. So he's saying, look, I, I've got God's work to do, I'm a spiritual Levite, and therefore the fact that I've lost this stuff is nothing to me. And that's a great example, really. He, he's really... Uh, a great example to us in, in all this, to feel that that awful situation he was in was still a, a great and lovely, and as he calls it, a pleasant inheritance. Now, he then moves on in the psalm to use words from verse 8 to 11. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, I should not be moved, etc., to use words which are quoted by Peter in Acts 2 in the context of saying that David was here talking about Jesus. But it's quite clear that putting that on one side for the moment, David is here talking about himself, about his own life. You know, you will not leave my soul in hell, in the grave. You will not suffer your Holy One, he's referring to himself, to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. And he looks forward to joys and pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. The, the context of the psalm is, is quite clearly that he's talking in the first instance about himself, but Peter says he's talking about Jesus. Well, yes, he was talking about Jesus, but he was also quite clearly in the context talking about himself. Well, Peter quotes from the Septuagint, I admit, but he, he does make a slight change uh, under inspiration. In, in Acts 2, when he, he quotes Psalm 16, verse 8, he quotes it like this. Uh, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. The psalm says, I set the Lord before my face. Uh, Peter says, David speaks concerning him, that is Jesus, I foresaw the Lord, the Lord Jesus, always before my face. I foresaw him. Yet the, the psalm is clearly talking in the first instance about David's own feelings and uh, about himself. And yet we have it on Peter's authority that David had Jesus in mind when he was talking about this and he was foreseeing the Lord Jesus. Now, I think that those two ideas are not contradictory. I think what we've got here is David thinking about himself and talking about himself. That cannot be denied. That is the, the obvious meaning of the psalm. And yet, in a seamless way, absolutely seamlessly, without any, any major break or whatever, he finds himself thinking about Jesus when he's thinking about himself. 
In other words, he saw himself as so connected with Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Because Jesus did not exist, of course, at the time of David. Well, he had known, of course, the promises to Abraham about the the seed, and they had been given uh, also to him about the the temple he wanted to build, etc. So he was aware that there was going to be this future seed. And if I'm correct in thinking that this psalm is written after his experience with Bathsheba, looking at a number of the Bathsheba psalms, they are talking about Jesus. And quite clearly, David must have reflected on the fact that, well, according to the law, I should be dead, but I have been saved by God's grace. On what basis? This was to the Jewish mind, steeped in the law of Moses. The law was his study all the day. This was the obvious question. On what basis, then, is my salvation? And it's okay thinking, yeah, well, God said I'm okay, so I'm okay. But, uh, you know... There must have been the question, well, how? On what basis? And I think that he came to understand an awful lot about Jesus. And he saw that actually his salvation was really predicated on the the future existence and resurrection of, of Jesus. And really this is how our moments of meditation should go. And we have in these Psalms a unique insight into a man's mind. Because it's really, a lot of these psalms are David's self-talk that he's written down, or somehow it's been written down and recorded for us. So in his self-talk, he seamlessly merges, I would say, himself with the future Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And that's really how our quiet time should go. You do reflect about yourself and your own path in life. And yet we're led on to, I think, that big sense that man is not alone. I'm not alone in this world, but that Jesus is with me. And particularly for those of us who have been baptized into Christ, the whole idea of being in Christ means that this same seamless connection, as I I call it, is between us and Jesus. Now, according to what Peter says... David says, I foresaw the Lord, and he means the Lord Jesus, always before my face. He's on my right hand that I should not be moved. So I think what Peter is saying is, look, David was always thinking about the Lord, Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and he saw him always before his face, and this was a great comfort to him, so that he was not moved. And if if David could be like that, with the uh, sketchy information that he had about Jesus, a lot of which was... Uh, from types and shadows and the law of Moses, and from, I guess, him trying to to reason things out as to various, if you like, theological and logical and spiritual implications in coming to some pretty clear understanding of Jesus. You know, we have a huge amount of detail that he didn't have. I mean, Jesus has come and lived, and the gospel records are written, and we have all the New Testament expounding the the work and mission of Jesus. And yet, how many days go by where we have very little thought for Jesus? But as David said, I foresaw the Lord Jesus always before my face, and this was my stability at the time of my persecution, the time he's, he's on the run as I see it from Absalom. 
Now, it's no good saying, well, that's all right if you haven't got a demanding job and if you're, you know, retired or you're sort of sitting at home and, uh, you know, nothing, no kids to disturb you or whatever. Uh, yes, okay, then maybe you can always see Jesus before your face, uh, as it were. But David was not in that position. He was on the run from Absalom, surrounded by men who wanted to turn to other gods and all the pressure and the emotional turmoil, etc., now, we know then that these words are then really applied by Peter to the Lord Jesus uh, personally. Uh, verse 9, my flesh shall rest in hope. This is clearly, uh, Peter understands this is referring to Jesus reflecting on his resurrection. And he quotes the whole section here from 8 to 11 about Jesus that these were the thoughts of Jesus. They were the thoughts of David, as I've said, but I've suggested that his thinking merged seamlessly with, as it were, the spirit or the mind, the thinking of Christ. Verse 10, You will not leave my soul in, in the grave, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Now, there is a great... Uh, mutuality here going on see verse 8 he the Lord is at my right hand verse 11 and so he will be put at God's right hand if God's at our right hand if we have him always at our right hand he's going to put us at his right hand that's what's being said here and the mutuality uh, continues with another example that's more clear in this quotation from the Septuagint that Peter gives than it is certainly from the AV um, and it goes like this uh, in verse 8 uh, he says I have set the Lord always before me I have set the Lord um, always before my face it is the, the quote it is how Peter quotes it so the Lord was before the face of Jesus and the face of David and then verse 11 In your presence, before your face, is what the Hebrew means. And uh, that, that is um, brought out in uh, also in the Septuagint, which Peter quotes, You shall make me full of joy with your countenance, with your face. So, because I put the Lord always before my face, Psalm 16, verse 8, therefore, verse 11, I will come before your face, before your presence, as the AV has it. So then there is this mutuality between uh, a man, a woman, and, and our God. And it, it's a wonderful theme that you can follow through the scriptures, this mutuality, that what he is for us, we are for him. If he is on our right hand, he will put us on his right hand. If he is before our face, he will put us before his face, and, and so forth. This mutuality is a sign, I think, of that growth in relationship with God, which is the, the essence of, of spirituality and of godliness and of, uh, of being Christ-like. 
And I can only say you can you can perceive the, the connection here and jot it down in your margin of your Bible, but you can only really experience this, that you move there and he moves there. He moves like that and you move like that, etc. It's a wonderful thing that is part of, I would say, the upward spiral of spiritual growth. One final point I would like to leave you with from verse 11 uh, Peter, without doubt, invites us to understand these verses as specifically talking about Jesus on, on one level. As I've said, they, that they can be understood uh, about David in the first context, but we have the authority of Acts 2 for understanding these verses as talking specifically about Jesus. So, verse 10 is clear enough about Jesus, that his body was not left in the grave, he didn't uh, see corruption, he was shown the path of life. In your presence, or before your face, is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Now, that means that Jesus, who is now before the face of God, who is now in the presence of God in heaven itself, has got a huge joy. And he is at the right hand of the throne of God, is he not? And there, at the right hand... Of God, he is finding pleasures forever. Now, the idea of being at the right hand forever is spoken about a number of times in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews, that the Lord Jesus is now forever an eternal priest, offering up our prayers at God's right hand. He ever lives as the writer says, to make intercession for us. So then, the Lord Jesus at the right hand of God forever, these ideas are applied to the Lord Jesus in the context of him offering up our prayers. And what is, according to this verse, what is for Jesus at the right hand forevermore? Pleasure. Pleasures. You know, what that means is that he has pleasure in offering up our prayers. His mediation for us is a pleasure for him. Now, when we as little people who are not the great and mighty of this world, when we consider the great and mighty of this world, we tend to, to think that they're sort of just doing a job. You know, that the Queen of England, for example, is just doing her job and she thinks, oh, yeah, we've got to go out and open that uh, that new office or whatever and wave to the crowds and all that. And, you know, and I think we tend to have that impression and we can also have that impression, therefore, of the father and son that, you know, Jesus is, as it were, doing a job for us. But he does a job a bit like we may do a job. Um, and well you do it because that's your calling and that's what you paid for and that's what you've got to do and then yeah, you knock off but the, jo the job that he is doing for us the mediation for us is a pleasure it is <clears throat> a fullness of joy for him now just think about that when you pray in Jesus name Amen this is a pleasure for him to mediate our prayers to God. And of course, his whole work of mediation, as Hebrews makes clear, is not, as it were, a, uh, an interpreting service whereby he sort of interprets from one language to another. 
sort of translates our prayers into a, a form and a language that God sort of can read and, and listen to. No, that, that's not the idea. I mean, his mediation does involve offering up our prayers, but it also involves him uh, talking to God for us on our behalf, not just as a translator, just putting our words into another language, but he wants us to be saved. And it is his joy to mediate for us, to talk to God about us. I mean, this idea is, is, is mind-blowing, it really is. And yet this is quite clearly what is being taught here by the connection between that verse 11 and the teaching of Hebrews about the evermore, the eternal uh, work of Jesus at the right hand of God in offering up prayers, sacrifices, mediating for us before the, the throne and the very face of God in your presence, before your face is this fullness of joy. And so just think, before the very face, the very face of God Almighty, your name, my name, is being mentioned with the utmost joy by the Son of God, by the Lord Jesus. This is what's happening. And it's not just when you pray that, I don't know how many minutes per day we pray. It's not many, sadly, I doubt. Um, because, you know, Gotta live life and, and all that, um, but that doesn't mean that. Let, let's say you, you spend ten minutes per day in prayer, six hundred seconds. That the six hundred seconds out of twenty-four hours, uh, you know, well, Jesus is kind of talking to God about us. The, the teaching of mediation in Hebrews does not, I think, solely mean that. It does talk about mediation of our prayers, but it is not limited to that. Mediation has a far wider meaning. And the point is that this is for the Lord Jesus a joy, not a burden. Not, oh, one more letter to translate, one more prayer to interpret from one language to another. No, I mean, God knows what we're saying anyway, and he understood people's prayers well before the work of Jesus in heaven. The mediation is not a translation service. It is him... Uh, pleading for us standing up for us before the, the right hand of God as he did for Stephen um, this pleading for our salvation and putting our case in the way that only he can uh, to, to the Father and not only just sort of to the Father a letter on a desk but before your face in thy presence the AV says uh, before your face is, the, is definitely the Hebrew idea, it's how it's quoted in, uh, in Acts 2, that our case comes regularly and often and with passion before the very face of God Almighty.